0: The reality of what mental health is, it's a cumulative build of the shit that we live through combined with our genetics and our physiology and our biology and all those things that make for how we think, feel, and function.
1: What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off The Cuff. You might know me as the guy from The Basement Yard, Vine, The Low Priory Podcast, and while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Daniel Priori, and today I'm joined by mental health consultant and founder of Hashtag Same here global mental health movement, and a podcast co-host of We're All A Little Crazy. I'm joined by Mr. Eric Hewson. Eric, how you doing today, sir? Good, man. The first thing I wanted to ask you, though, I'd always start kind of at where you're at now, yeah. and then kind of work our way back to, like, your genesis a little bit. Yeah. I feel like everybody wants to, like, sit through, like, you know, oh, where are you from? Like, what was yeah, your birthday? Yeah. No, no know what's your relationship with your dad like but how you like what's your day-to-day work with hashtag same here what's like a typical day for you yeah it's interesting because i worked in professional sports
0: for 15 years where i was working for the man or the woman right depending on who the owner of the group was and so when you work for existing infrastructures that have been around for 30 40 50 60 years that are run by billionaire owners if you mess something up, or you're off for a certain day, or you don't get your work done at a high level. Not that that was ever the goal, but it happens, right? We're we're humans. The bottom didn't fall out. And then I started this organization, as we'll get into the story, because I felt an obligation to get into this space because of what I learned about how fucked up our medical system is and wanting to change narratives around getting people educated on what's actually going on with mental health. That required me starting first a nonprofit that became also a brother-sister for-profit because as I learned in the nonprofit space, as much as this is not about money for me and making money, you do need to find ways to be able to generate revenue so that you can float the nonprofit work that you're doing and get it out there more. There's only so many times you can beg for money or ask for donations from people, and I'm not someone who's good at that. So I'd rather create programs that are revenue generating that help to supplement what we're doing on the nonprofit side of things. So, when you are a startup of two different ventures going on at the same time, and then a partner in a third venture, which is a telehealth company that's become national called Regional Psychiatry, they're kind of different pieces that are part of an ecosystem. Your role is many. You're everything from yesterday I was at a school and doing a presentation with a former NFL player in front of a group of three different football teams. Then I have to get online and meet with my developers who are updating our app and making sure that it's compliant with PII information and, you know, making sure that we are dotting every I, crossing every T in terms of, you know, I have to do quality control because it's easier for me to do it than to pay someone to do it. I have to make sure that the servers are up and running and that our bills are getting paid on those sort of things. So there's administrative things, but on the fun side, it's presentations, it's programming, it's app development, it's working with entertainers and athletes to come together around you called it a movement. That's what it is. Same here. It's rallying people together to feel like we're all part of one big group and, and a little bit of a cheesy line that is not cliche. It'll be the first time you heard it, but it's someone who I share the concept of same here with, and this is what they kind of took from what I shared or laid back to me. They said, it's kind of like a club that everyone in the world is already a member of. They just don't all know it yet. Yeah. And That, to me, is the essence of what we're trying to do with mental health. Let's get away from the binaries of the sick group and the healthy group. Who's in the sick group? And let's stop stigmatizing that sick group. And instead, let's talk about all the shit that we all go through that puts us all on this same team because we're team human right now, right? And when you get to that aspect of being able to communicate to people, there's no need to say stop the stigma. There's no need to ask people to treat people differently because you start to look around and you go, that person
1: is just like me. That's also like one of the main reasons why we started this show is this, especially amongst men to kind of get rid of the stigma of talking about mental health and try to rid the world of the, the stigmas of, you know, like step up, be a man, man up, nut up, stop being a pussy. Like, you know, trying to talk to each other and be nicer. I grew up playing sports. so. Yeah. That was kind of just ingrained in me by every coach I kind of had. I tell people to this day, sports taught me so much about life that I can't look at it as negative as I want to. But yeah. there's sometimes when I watch sports now, just from what I know now, just from an outsider looking in, watching professional sports, I'm like, oh, this is some of the most toxic shit on television. Okay. So Mike Babcock,
0: if you watched that story two days ago, he's a coach of was the coach. Of yeah, the, of the Columbus Blue Jackets got fired. He's been known to involve himself. Let's call it that or lead toxic work environments in the NHL. Right. So gets fired from the Toronto Maple Leafs. Some of the stories there were old school people would hear this and go, that's not that big a deal. But go through this story. He's got a player on his team, Marner, who's a rookie, big time player. He asks him to rank for him who the other players are on the team based on the effort level that they give on a day to day basis in practice and in games. He then takes that ranking without telling Marner he's going to do it and makes it public to the rest of the team. That is violating a line where now I'm going to go back to your comment that you made about I grew up playing sports. Hopefully you could see by my my size. I, I'd be pretty upset with myself if I didn't oh, yeah. play sports growing up. So four sport athlete growing up, right, walked on to the college basketball team up at school. So wasn't too great of a player, more of like a you know blue collar diving on the, on the floor for loose balls and get rebounds type of guy. But the reason why we as athletes or anyone that has this same view that athletes had for so long doesn't think the topic of mental health is something that we can dive into is not necessarily the term mental health. It's what we came to understand what mental health was. Okay. So for so long, society told us mental health is for a sick group of people who have this thing called depression or anxiety or PTSD or OCD or panic attacks or addiction or overdose problems or suicidal thoughts, put that in a bucket by itself with all these names, okay? And then everything else that you deal with when you're an athlete on the field, like what I just shared, that's why I use the Mike Babcock example. That was what he did in Toronto. What he just did right now that got him fired in Columbus is... He made players come over their house. And he goes, give me your phone. I want to see what type of person you are and projects their personal pictures on the wall so they can talk. Now, someone might hear that and go, that's not that big a deal. It, you know, He's showing his own pictures. You don't go into someone's personal phone when we all know we have personal shit that we keep on our phones. 100%. Even If you're saying it's with the best intentions, that's a line you can't cross. So now when you look at this broader global scope of what mental health is and all the things that coaches told us, in their isms that coaches do forget the last play and move on to the next one time heals all wounds put your nose to the ground rub some dirt in it right people will say eric come on you're not being tough enough like by saying that those things shouldn't continue to happen on the field there's no issue with on the field those things happening. okay when you make a bad play it is important to move past it and go on to the next play the issue is as athletes you internalize that as a life direction instead of a game direction And so you hear that and you go, well, coach said, forget the last play, move on to the next one. When my teammate tore me a new asshole because I didn't pass him the ball, I'm not supposed to address that and bring that up anymore. When coach pulled me out of the game because I did something wrong and never addressed it and explained to me why, and I'm holding on to that, I'm told to just bury it and play better the next game. That's called emotional pain. And emotional pain is cumulative. And emotional pain builds in the fascia of our system, in our central nervous system, in our muscles, in every cell in our body, and it accumulates and it builds. So now take these two erroneous understandings of mental health. On the one hand, it's these genetically fucked up people who have these disorders. And on the other hand, the reality of what mental health is, it's a cumulative build of the shit that we live through combined with our genetics and our physiology and our biology and all those things. That make for how we think, feel, and function. That difference between those two makes all the difference in the world. Because now, bringing it back to you being an athlete, if your coach told you to run stadium stairs, but you are a soccer player, you'd go, "Coach, why am I running up and down on an incline and a decline when the pitch is flat in soccer?" And the coach would go, "Because I'm trying to fatigue your heart to a point where it's more fatigued than it's ever going to get on the field. You're going to be able to outrun the opponents." Sure, sign me up. I'll run as many up and downs as you want me to. No one tells us the physiological build and the biological impact of those stressors on our system. So we don't do anything about it. And when we're told bury it and don't work on it, that's what starts to impact us, which leads to these things that then doctors call depression, anxiety, PTSD. All that is, those are smoke screen signals that our body is saying to us, something's not right internally, you got to work on it.
1: I tell people all the time, like, I love the fact that I played sports. It taught me a lot about life. But it, the one thing it didn't teach me about was mental health. Like it taught me how to like, you know, be a better friend, conflict resolution, teamwork, all that type of stuff, social skills. Like, it, it, you know, it taught me these things, but like, we were never in the huddle just like, that's like depressed today. Yeah. You know, like we never talked about that. It was just like so. Depressed is one word, right? And that
0: was when we were growing up, right? We're Relatively the same age. I'm older than you, just to be fair to you. You're you're the young and in a that doesn't make me feel good saying that. By the way, out loud. Hey, listen, man. I I, I said that to give you props.
1: I tell people all the time: if you got hair, you got hair. If you got it,
0: you're 28. All right. So, so no one knows then based on the fact that both of us have these mops going on in our head, but look at, look at the example that came to your mind. Right. And I'm only using the specific word. So like, we never got in a a huddle and said, I'm depressed. Take that a step away for a second from the label piece of it. You never got the huddle with your friends when you were stretching and go, Sally broke up with me and dude, like it's crushing me right now because I love that girl. And not spending time with her is messing with my mind being on the field right now because that level of vulnerability
1: that was frowned down upon completely. Uh, I don't even want to think about what was coming back to me. If I said that in a home. right.
0: exactly. So the depression piece is even a layer that we didn't get to the word depression, but then the layer that should have been even further down in more depth that actually would have helped us deal with the core issue. Certainly didn't discuss because the label wasn't even getting discussed. And I would say in some cases, the label was used as a way to gloss over and be like, yeah, I'm depressed. Okay, well, go see a therapist, go see a professional or something like that. And we never got down to the brass taxes of what's actually going on with this person.
1: Yeah, and you want to know what it is though too. It's like when you're on those teams, I'm going to keep it relatable. A lot of people don't play sports after high school, right? Yep. So keeping it in the realm of sports too, It's you have this family that you've been told to, give your life to. You're going to practice in the summertime, two a days. You're trying to walk on eggshells, keep your position. You got to outwork guys. You got to beat your friends out for snaps and and all this stuff. And then you graduate and then that's a huge support system of yours. That's just 100% gone.
0: You know what you saying that just reminded me of, did you see the Johnny Menzel documentary? Yeah. Yeah. Johnny's a friend. Okay. So I watched that documentary through the lens of a mental health advocate. You call the consultant, right? I guess it's a little bit of each of the same. You call yourself an advocate, I guess, when you live in the space like you do and you're consuming the content on a daily basis. It's probably not dissimilar to how I I saw the Tiger Woods documentary. Everyone's thinking of it as, oh, you know, this profile of his life as a golfer. And I'm like, that's a mental health story right there.
1: Yeah, I was like, there's narcissism going on here. His dad basically told him he's going to be the savior of bringing
0: white and black people together because he's a great golfer. You talk about pressure on a young kid's shoulders, it's eventually going to crack. But in in Johnny's case, what doesn't get called out and it gets mentioned slightly is when he was playing high school football and it was Friday Night Lights, he had the camaraderie of his teammates. Okay, Then all of a sudden he goes to college. Cliff Kingsbury is his offensive coordinator. He knows that Johnny's selling millions of jerseys, that he can't show up on campus because people are just going to crowd around him because he's this huge name now, wins the Heisman Trophy. And so you go from a high school setting where your frat brother type of environment is your support system to college, where it's very hard to find that support system in college. Now, I think he had it worse than most because at least most guys in college There's that camaraderie amongst the team where it's bringing everyone together, all in it together. But the way that Kingsbury was describing it, Manziel was kind of a man on his own. Like he was put up on a perch and on a pedestal. And because he was, you know, hounded by so many other people, you don't have that support system. So now you go to the NFL after not playing four years full in college, and you're expected now to be part of the brotherhood and or lack thereof that exists in the NFL, let's be honest it claims that there's a brotherhood, but the reality is I'm a businessman, right? (laughs) Because you're a business, not just a businessman, right? And the second they draft you, they're trying to find your replacement who's cheaper and able to do more than you. So he went from high school, his support system was probably not the healthiest support system, but at least he had his bros around him to then going into college. And I'll land the plane on this one because it sounds like you've got Direct knowledge with Johnny, I'm just talking about it from, yeah, yeah. from watching the, the documentary. Is I think they did him a disservice in the way that they ended the documentary because they show him in his house in Scottsdale. And I, I remember those houses like they're yesterday, having worked for the sons And he's playing darts and there's beers in the background. And it's like he's got his frat brother bros around him. And that's his support system. And his sister's going up, you know, the voiceover going. Yeah, Johnny's not ready really to assimilate back into life in a full-time status. And you're thinking to yourself, well, who's actually giving this guy help? Where is the real support coming from? Because it's great to have frat bro friends. That's awesome. But there needs to be other formal support systems in place or you start to
1: spiral. I think also with the case of Johnny too, it's like how you said, when you're in high school, those are your boys. Like You grew up with them. Like You've known them for a long time then you start to go to this these big schools with huge 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 endowments and stuff and now it's like you have all this different type of background people so it's kind of hard to find like how do I fit in with this person this person i know him and mike evans are still cool but you know it became one of those things where is this like a rock star story or a mental health story like how are we going to spin it it's almost like john jones right yep john jones the ufc heavyweight champion he's like controlled chaos in a way, right? It's like, I don't know if he's as good of a fighter, if he's not as wild as he is sure. outside of the cage.
0: Sure. But in, in fairness to that, and tell me if, if I'm going down the right path You here, I think UFC fighting in an individual sport locked in a cage yes. is a much different type of environment in terms of what breeds success then when you're expected to be the leader of 11 other guys and then 52 other guys, say 10 other guys and 52 other guys on the field with you where you're the face of this franchise that has had an awful run as a Jets fan, unfortunately. I know that well. Don't hate me that you're a Giants fan, But I just watch it. I, I think you nailed it. I'm friendly with Ryan Leaf. Okay, yeah, and so yeah, yeah. Ryan, Ryan is probably the best person to opine on the Johnny Manziel story because they were both drafted high and then are considered busts. right? And he said Netflix did such a disservice to Johnny because you said it. Was it the character, Johnny Football, that they were focusing on? Or was it this path towards getting to a better spot? Explain to people what caused this spin out of control. And I think they made him more of a character and propped up what the Johnny Football character was more so than how do we get this guy help? And what has
1: he been doing to get to a better place? I look at that whole whole episode kind of like do they just want Johnny football? And I think Johnny kind of knew that, like you can't take away from the cool fucking shit that sure, he did, sure, you know, but course. it's like, if we really look at like the grand scheme is some people are just ready to put stuff to bed in their life. And then some people just aren't like in conversations that I have with him. It's like, yo, like I played football at the highest level, made a good amount of money signing bonus. I like to play golf. I like to do these things. Like, this is like kind of how my life is. And, you know, if I feel that I need to change certain things about my life, it's going to get there. I look at his process almost like small increments. Right. It's like our friend who is an alcoholic or a drug addict. And it's like we know that this person needs to do some more work on themselves. But then you also see like, all right, he drank six beers instead of 15. Right. So, you know, I'm just looking at it from somebody who's been in a position where I used to wake up and drink 18 beers a day. Yes. You know, and I would count these like little moral victories and be like, I only had six. Dude, I used to drink beers because I had the fantasy kicker on Monday night. <laughs> you know, like I'm watching a kicker specifically and getting drunk like while doing it. You need their points to, to,
0: to win that week or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. And I looked at it like I sent him one text message after I saw the thing. And I just said, yo, bro, if you ever need anything, holler at me. That's it, because I knew his phone was going crazy and and all that stuff. I think they did him a disservice as well. I was like, I don't really like this last shot of this, sh- of this documentary. Honestly, though, but I don't think Johnny gives a fuck.
0: Well, because maybe he hasn't found the right mentorship to show him whether or not he should give a fuck or not and what's actually spinning him out of control. Because the path that I saw what Netflix did in terms of the PR to float out there, if you remember, three or four days before the doc came out, and I know this because Darren Ravel is on our alliance, right? So Darren's yeah, yeah. this big sports business guy who people think he's quirky and whatever. They make fun of him. The barstool guys rip on him, whatever. But Darren, he sends me a tweet. And he's like, holy shit, Manziel's going to reveal a suicide attempt. So the second I hear that, I go, okay, let me take it out of the Johnny bucket for a second. Theo Fleury is our co-host and a good friend on, on the alliance, okay? NHL great. And when I talked to Theo about sharing his story, he goes, man, he goes, I'm tired of sharing that I was raped 150 times by my male coach when I was 15 years old. But I understand to bring people in, you have to tell a little bit of the train wreck story because that draws people. But once I hook them, that's not going to be the main focus of my talk. Then I'm going to talk about the healing journey that I've gone on. But the gore has got to be there. Okay. So when I see the Johnny thing, now putting this all together, I go, okay, Netflix floats out the suicidal ideations and what they call a bender and spending $5 million and what made it seem like he had this plan, which I think is bullshit, right? We'll get into suicidal ideation a little bit later. But to your point in terms of making him the character, they could have continued with the content being strong where people would be interested in it by talking about the Jersey sales, by talking about the women, by talking about the drinking. That's all part of his story. But his narrative, and that's the whole point of a documentary, is which part of his interview are you going to show in that hour and 40 minutes that you have? And they chose to focus his sound bites on him narrating about what it was like being Johnny Football. Why couldn't they have still shown the same highlights of the trouble he got into and then have a conversation with him? Or maybe they did and they just put it on the cutting room floor where they go, dude, what's it like? feeling isolated, and being the only person who can't go to class because everyone's mobbing you? What's it like when you don't read the playbook and you come in and you're not prepared because you've never been asked to read a playbook before, right? Like that wasn't what was discussed. And it goes back to what you're talking about with the huddle in sports growing up. If no one's asking you those questions and we're not comfortable discussing those things, to your point, he doesn't even recognize that that's even a need for what he needs to do. He just yes. thinks he's a guy who has this thing called bipolar. He has it genetically. It caused him to feel these ways, and that's what led to the suicidal ideation. And the layman hears that and goes, "Oh, that's what mental health is. If you have bipolar, it could lead to suicidal thoughts. Good thing I don't have bipolar, so right. that story doesn't apply to." And I'm not, I'm not a big-time college football player, so this is never going to happen.
1: Yeah. The thing I hate about any consumable content is you got to make it sexy. I think Netflix dropped the ball on like all of those things. I watched the one about the Florida Gators. Yeah. It was terrible. I'm like, no one's going to talk about Aaron Hernandez killing these people and what his brain looked like when they took his brain out of his head. You know, I was like, we're not going to talk about the Pouncy Twins. We're not going to talk about like any of this. That story is so much crazier.
0: But you and I are sports guys, right? And eyeballs come from sports. Okay. And so the Netflix examples that you're giving are sports related documentaries, right? Yeah. Okay. And I'm forgetting the name of the series that they have that, that, um, that Uh, untold, Untold, yes. The Marty Fish one, right? Stuff like that. Okay. In fairness to Netflix, I don't want to rip Netflix completely. I think they had two very good documentaries, but they weren't sports focused. One was Dope Sick, the other was Social Dilemma. So now, as guys who are athletes who know that the general public, the largest set of eyeballs come from telling these athlete stories and sports stories that bring people together. We have to hold Netflix accountable. Now that might, oh, Eric, how do you do that? It's like this. It's having these podcasts. It's going on social media channels. It's talking about it. It's getting a Ryan Leaf to open up about it because if they can do it for a dope sick where they show how insidious that industry is with opioid abuse and that they're selling, Purdue is selling to their reps. Who cares whether or not these people are having bad side effects? Here's what we're explaining: the bad side effects are because they're not on enough of the medication, right? Or in right. social dilemma, look at the the sociopathy of a person who's trying to become an influencer and how that just you know fans the flames on the dopamine hit that they're getting from getting more likes and more views. That's a narrative that's educational that helps people. For some reason, when it comes to sports, the Johnny Football sensationalism becomes the main focus. And there's not as much of a focus on wh- how did that actually affect the person? And so I bring up Marty Fish when you thank you for reminding me that was on yeah. told. Marty Fish was one of the good stories where they did that. Now, that was probably Marty pushing and going, I got a That's mental it. health story here and you better freaking tell this piece of it, because if not, my story's not complete and I'm not helping people. But for most of the athletes that are out there, they're like, all right, you're going to sensationalize this ridiculous time in my life and I'm going to be able to do more talks on it and sell more books sure, have at it, and they don't get into the nitty-gritty of the editing part of it.
1: Yeah, and I I always look at sports documentaries from – I try to put myself in my – if it's happened during my lifetime, I try to watch it kind of from those eyes, because I remember watching him play in college and being like, yo, this fucking kid's a beast. Like, he's got swag. Like, I'm a younger guy. I'm watching. I'm like, yo, that's fucking awesome. But, you know, when you kind of get to know people like on a personal level, you just want people to be OK at the end of the day. That's just where it comes for me. I'm just like, yo, if, if you tell me you're good, I got to try and take your word at it and move on from there. But it's like when you see somebody in those situations, there's times where I watch professional sports now. I'm like, why do I even fucking care about this shit? I'm with you. The Giants lose on a Sunday. My fucking week is ruined. They right. lost 40 nothing to the Cowboys, and they, right. they almost lost to the Cardinals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yo, like it ruins my week. I'm like, why do I do this shit to myself? Because I'm programmed. Yep. I'm programmed. My father programmed me yep. to be like, hey, listen, we're going to sit down, and you care about this shit. My father was a sports writer, so I, I grew up reading the paper. I didn't know if teams won on the West Coast until I read the paper the next right, day. Right, right. I didn't know like internet websites and how to use the computer that well. You know what I mean? My dad was a paper guy, brought the paper home. I read the paper. I remember going and getting dirty fingers and looking at the standings and seeing where everybody is. So I was programmed to care about this stuff. And now I've been out of my parents' home for almost 10 years, more than that. And I was, I'm still I'm watching fucking the U.S. Open. Like I give a shit. You know, like I, I, if I didn't care about sports and if I didn't play sports, I'm sure there'd be some negative things, more negative things going on in my life. But the added stress that I have of like worrying, oh, the the Yankees are six games out. There's ten games left. Right. Oh, they they could go, they could get hot and like get in. I don't give a shit. You know, I, that's why I have to really think about how important the escape of sports is and how unimportant it is you nailed the important term the escape right so we
0: spoke to this group i had this guy reggie walker's seven-year nfl vet no one would know yeah. his name because he's a bit player like you know san diego he played for when the, when the Chargers were still there and, and and arizona with the cardinals and whether it was me being a professional sports executive whether it's him playing professional sports whether your father being a writer a sports writer Your love of what you do every single day is an escape. And that might sound ridiculous for people when I'm talking about work, because people recognize sports and watching a game. Okay, that's an escape. And yes, my love for the Yankees and the Giants losing and then being crushed the rest of the week is an escape. you listen to WFAN and they call it, you know, uh, Toyland, right? And stuff like that, that, oh, we're playing in Toyland right now. This isn't the real stuff. But there's a reality to that is, When we immerse ourselves and we're taught at a young age, when we're athletes, like this stuff matters, this is important to you. But then you don't deal with the other stuff that actually does matter. And so then then you become this adult where, to your point, oh, my whole week is ruined. If Aaron Rodgers just went down in my particular case, by the way, side note, I never let myself get excited about Aaron Rodgers because I know I'm a Jets fan that something bad was going to happen. So that at least.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's your second Packer quarterback you gave a shot.
0: Yes. And by the way, I think it's Favre and him are the only two out of like the other, there's six total quarterbacks that are like MVP level and and Hall of Fame level quarterbacks that change teams later in their career. Four of them worked out. The two that didn't came to the Jets. Yeah,
1: sounds about right. Tom Brady Brady probably was the way to go. Tom Brady, Pete
0: Manning, right? Even, Even Joe Montana. So you look at this and you're like, Wow. All the stuff that I loved growing up, for me, it was going to Islander games because I was 15 minutes away from, from the Coliseum growing up. Talk about depression. Look at that. Well, and you know what, though? Like As awful as they were, that rivalry between Islanders and Rangers, just I had my pucks that were getting signed after games because it was a different time when the players would just drive out of the tunnel, and you'd get them to stop their car and put the puck in front of them, silver marker, and they'd sign it. That was escape. Now, that was what gave you your dopamine hit. So you look for other things that you enjoyed like that. And you thought that's what brought contentment and happiness. Meanwhile, there's this shit building up inside you from other things that have gone on in your life. Like we talked about in that huddle, the breakup from the girl that you were hanging out with the grandparent that passed away, that it happened suddenly that it rocked your world because you weren't expecting it to happen. That family member who was sick at a young age, that's the stuff that builds up. But the sports, where the choir or the band allows you to immerse yourself in something where dopamine, 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 that is an addiction and a drug itself. The things that we love that make us not work on the stuff that's building up silent. Yeah. And that's the biggest epidemic on our planet is this silent build of stress and trauma that we don't
1: address. So I appreciate you bringing it up because it's real. It's the truth. And it's like, it's just wild to think about at, some point in my life, I was like, I don't want to tell my friends this because they're going to call me a fag. That was a thought that I was fearful of. Yes. That's wild. wild. And it was so normal. And, the, and it's so weird to think about how it actually got to be the norm. A lot of people have gaps in their memories as little kids. But I
0: bet you there was some point in your life, let's say between the ages of six and going to college. So six and 18 Where either you were called a name by someone that related to your appearance or someone made some comment about the way that you dressed or or gave you a nickname or whatever it was. I don't know a person on this planet who hasn't had that. And that's even within your friend group sometimes, right? Like not necessarily the bully, quote unquote, who was like, look at that loser and look at the glasses that Daniel wears. He's four eyes or something like that, right? And I'm a tall dude, right? I'm 6'4". So, what did my short friends call me, even though they're my friends? They'd say my name is Q for Cusin. So the word ogre. So they say cuger, right? Like it, and like even hearing that word right now, like my guess is most people would rather be six four than five foot eight. I'm just guessing, right? I'm not saying that in a derogatory way towards people. Maybe not when I sit on a plane. But even in knowing that now as an adult, And being like, all that was, was they were in pain that they weren't tall. And they saw that I was playing basketball or that I was getting a chance to go play college or whatever. So they were trying to tear me down a little bit and not in like a mean way, like a jabbing way. But when I hear that, maybe I haven't done enough EMDR sessions or something like that, but that rips at me when I hear that word, because it, it, it builds inside you and it becomes something that becomes part of your makeup. And we don't do enough work as a society going... The shit that I lived through, even if it was
1: passing comments, is part of what is inside of me. Absolutely. I mean, we had a kid that was super fast on our team. He was like Darren Sproles, who was five foot six. So, for people that don't know who Darren Sproles is, this kid was like five five. We called him Lightning Chode every day. It was a good thing and a bad thing, and a bad thing. at the same right. time. Right. So we were like, "Yo, yeah, Lightning Chode." And then I remember, like, three years after we graduated, he was like, "Yeah, guys, didn't really love that nickname. It kind of right. like..." With me and i was like oh wow like i never really thought about it because the beginning of it's like cool and then you're chode so he called you a chode and i'm like wow i didn't really think about that like how you could have lasting effects just from like nicknames and shit
0: i saw my friend grow- from growing up the other day and our coach our football coach there's the brand care bears right yes he called one of the offensive linemen on our team in high school a hair bear Okay, so like the rest of the team loved it because it had the alliteration. Right. Or the rhyming or whatever. And coach is saying, he's like, that's a great play. You're a hair bear. And you're like, this is fucking hilarious. But at the same time, that kid's probably going home, going like, our girl's not looking at me because I got hair all over my body. And now I got my guy friends who are ripping
1: on me for this. Right. Like it's real. Right. And so when people nobody wants to be the fucking hairy kid. Yeah, exactly. I wanted to ask you about like also. Are you pro-medication, anti-medication, middle ground? Like, how do you feel like just in terms of, you know, when you're going and we all have messages, right? We all have messages that we try to put out into the world. I always like to talk to people about medication, though, because it seems to be an uncommon ground. I like to be on uncommon ground because when you do shows like this, everyone's just like, yeah, no, no, for real. I'm like, no, like if you don't like something, like I like to talk about it. I love
0: diving into the minutiae and 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 I'm also open to learning new things and being challenged on my thought process. Right, yeah. So I think before I give you my opinion, the trajectory of of my experience with medications is important. So I'm six months into my tenure with the Florida Panthers, chief revenue officer. I'm living in South Beach, um, single guy, making more money I've ever made before in my life no state income tax. What could be bad? And then my brain and my body just give out of me, And I didn't know where it came from. I'm 34 years old, your age at the time. And all of a sudden it's like, I can't put sentence together. I can't look at people in the eyes and have conversations. Do I have a brain tumor? Did I have a traumatic brain injury that's now just manifesting? Did I literally have an explosion, like an aneurysm in my brain that's making it not work? What is this? That led dude to coming back to New York thinking I'd take a short amount of time to find the right medications to balance out my chemical imbalance. Two and a half years of dysfunction, staring at the ceiling, not because I'm a lazy SOB, hopefully you could see in my energy, but because I was dysfunctional. I couldn't get up out of bed. Like If you wanted to force me for a walk, I could do that. But outside of that, actually cognitively diving into something and processing it, even watching a show, and following a plot line was an impossibility to me. Thank During that it. time, I was tried on 52 different combinations of psychotropic drugs. Okay. Woo! Now, none of them healed me and balanced out my imbalance.
1: I'm not laughing at you. It's just I relate so much to like just the struggle. Like, I, I, don't, want, I don't want the audience to see me laughing and think I'm laughing at you. No, but I just know it's like. I'm on Lexapro now. No. I tried like six things before Lexapro, and I was like, this shit's making me wanna kill myself though. Zoloff so legitimately made me want to kill myself again. That was Paxil with me. Yeah. My dick didn't work and
0: shit. It was all fucked up. Dude, it, it, like some of the thoughts that came through my head, just to give you how insidious, the doctors I went to were called psychopharmacologists. And I'm not damning all psychopharmacologists. they are people who mix meds multiple at a time and think that they're giving you a cocktail that works. So people will be able to relate to this. There was a time where they thought my issue was, because my processing was slow, because my brain didn't feel like it was working, we need to give Eric stimulants. So they're giving me Adderall, Ritalin, Nuvigil, Provigil. okay? Well, okay, let's go through the science of that. My nervous system was already on fire, which was the reason why my processing was off, okay? But they're instead putting me in this bucket of ADHD and having a processing issue, So they're giving me a stimulant that's raising my sympathetic nervous system response, which is making my anxiety worse, which is making my thoughts suppressed even more, which is making me have all these crazy weird thoughts. Here's their solution when I call them and I'm like, I'm looking at a wall and it looks like something's coming out of me. It's not a hallucination, but it's like my brain is coming up with concocting all these ideas. What is happening? And they go, take more Xanax. Okay. So basically they were like, here's more of an upper So because the upper isn't giving you the desired effect, take more of a downer and we'll get you somewhere in the middle. It's ridiculous, okay? So now, even with all that, and even with healing through mind-body practices, which we can get into, I'm on a small dose of Lexapro right now. I'm tapering down. I was on six milligrams. I'm down to 0.5 a day now, okay? At my size, which is not that much. Here's my overarching message to everyone on medication. Different things work for different people. That's number one. Number two, the way the pharmaceutical industry sells medication to us is an abomination. They sell medication as a cure. They say, Daniel, you're not feeling well. And you haven't shared with me how well the Lexapros work for you, but I can almost promise this. Taking Lexapro by itself as your sixth drug didn't all of a sudden turn on a switch and go, Daniel's perfect now. He doesn't need to do anything else. He's cured. He doesn't have it anymore. Okay. But that's how they sell it on the commercials. If you watch a commercial, It's a sad face with a cloud above it. 15 seconds into the 30-second commercial, the drug is introduced, and it becomes a smiley face. The clouds go away. The sky is blue. Everything's great. That is bullshit. That is not how medications work. So what medications do is they dampen some of the awful symptoms that you have from nervous system dysregulation so that in dampening those symptoms, if your symptoms are things like, it's hard for me to get out of bed. I get sweaty palms when I go to have a conversation, which just makes my mind spin and not be able to speak and put sentences together. It dampens that response and it allows you to do the actual healing work to what's going on in your body physiologically and biologically and start to make those changes by doing mind body practices, by going to an EMDR, doing top-down type of therapies, doing bottom-up like yogas and meditation. But to market drugs as a cure, here's what happens to society in mass. And I think when you say we all got to go around with messages, this is my my message I want to get across to people. The underlying statistic that gets sent out there every May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and now September Suicide Prevention Month is, in the context of mental health, one in five people are mentally ill. That's Giving a green light to four in five people, 80% of our population, you're healthy, fine, normal, and okay. There's nothing wrong with you. Don't worry about your mental health. So what does the medication message do to piggyback off of that one in five binary? This is what it does. It goes, oh, I'm watching a TV commercial. I've never been diagnosed with that thing called depression, anxiety. I don't have this sad face going on right now to that level. I didn't run off a basketball court like Kevin Love with a panic attack so I don't have it. But here's the good news. If I ever develop it or genetically it happens to be in my bloodline, there's a drug that fixes that. It literally sells complacency to the majority of the population to think this topic doesn't apply to them because if they get it, there's something that fixes them, right? It would be like diabetics going, okay, metformin, that's what fixes a diabetic. So I'll eat whatever the fuck I want, nachos, french fries, potato chips. I'll never go to the gym. But if I develop diabetes, there's something that just fixes it and makes my blood sugar better. Yeah. That's what we've done with mental health drugs.
1: No, you're right. Because you want to know what it is. They don't show commercials the work that goes into it. It's like, yeah, like I take Lexapro, but I'm so honest about like what like goes on in my body, like with my audience, that it's crazy. If I forget to take my Lexapro for a day. I start feeling some shit. I get headaches. I get a, a shooting throat- star feeling, right? Like the I get I get a click going in my throat. Like there's stuff that's going on there. You know what I mean? I'm also on a benzo for my panic disorder. Yep. Like that I've been tapering off. And it's like, I might have to go inpatient to get tapered off of this stuff. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just super honest about being like, hey, listen, like I use these medications, I use metformin, I use Ozempic, but I tell people, I'm like. But I'm in therapy, though, and I didn't want to go to therapy and be like, yeah, so like my dad was a piece of shit. Right, right, right. sucks. I was like, I need cognitive behavioral therapy because I need to understand the physiological reason why my body is doing what it's doing. I still have nights where I'm like, I got to go to the emergency room right now.
0: Take what you just shared with CBT, and I use the analogy of running up and down the stadium stairs. Why do people go to the gym for their physical health? Okay, because they understand, and it started when we were younger with those gray posters that were on the wall. It was like if you work out like this, your biceps get bigger. If you work out like this, your deltoids, your shoulders get bigger, right? If you do crunches, it's supposedly, you know, strengthening your core. I don't know that it necessarily works to your point. Maybe you need to take a zempic, right? That's besides the point. But there's a cause and effect. You know, we're taught in physical education. Break down fast-twitch muscle fibers, tear them, eat protein, they build back stronger. Get on the treadmill, run, burn more calories than what you consume. You lose this thing called weight or fat cells or cholesterol or whatever all the things are that we're told that we lose. And so your brain goes, cause and effect, okay? This is what is explained to me, so this is what I do. Sitting on a fucking couch with people and pouring your heart out does nothing more than your. Wheels spinning in a fucking you know mud pit as you're trying to get the car out of it, hitting the gas, and the wheels just make the tracks deeper and deeper and deeper. You yeah. need tools that tell you, like a CBT, okay? Well, so many other tools that are out there, but you pick that one that goes, "What's going on in my brain that's this thought is related to what?" that if I actually replace this thought with this, it's actually gonna allow the amygdala to dampen and not have this over sympathetic response where cortisol's running throughout my body now. Cool, sign me up to do that exercise.
1: No, it's it's tough. And then I always try to find, like I look at it from, one, I do think like it's almost hypocritical, but I do think that children are over medicated. Do what you wanna do. If you're an adult, Different strokes for different folks. It's just tough for me when I see kids on psych meds that I know that are like super duper strong, for lack of a better word. It's like my brain can be rewired as an adult, right? I think they look at kids and their brains being—they're still forming. Like they say, like your frontal cortex, like doesn't stop forming till you're 25. Yep. You know, I'm happy that I didn't take any like medication up until like. 26 or 27. No question. If whenever I have a kid and they're like, oh man, I was like, I don't know if I want to give my kid this though. My parents were like that. And I, and I get it. My brother has Tourette syndrome and he started taking meds and he was walking around like drooling on himself. Yep. You know, and my mom was like, I'm not doing this. She was like, she went and took him back to the doctor. She was like, he doesn't like it. I'm not doing it. I'm not forcing him to take it. And he was able to live a perfectly normal, like fun life. That learning to
0: deal with the struggle, it's interesting you brought up your brother's story because I have a lot of friends that go, a doctor's recommending my child go on ADHD meds. They can't concentrate. They can't concentrate. They can't concentrate. And so I give them the far end of the spectrum example. I say, let's say this ADHD drug, this Adderall, or this Ritalin that they take actually works for them. And they're able to focus right now. And then they get into college and all of a sudden the pressure's a little bit higher. There's more at stake. They're trying to get the job by showing that they have high enough grades as their GPA to get the next position. And the ADHD med's not working as well. So then their mind goes, I got to take more of it. I got to take more of it. When you're taught at a young age that there's this escapism type of tool that you pop that just makes things better, you're never asked to develop the skill set that allows you to downregulate to learn how to deal with those challenging events. And look, take psych meds out of it for a second. You and I grew up, and the kids still to this day, it's still the case. We get physical health ailments as little kids, strep throat, bronchitis, pneumonia. Okay, yeah. We go to the general care doctor, who's the pediatrician. When you're young enough age that you can't swallow a pill, you get the medication in liquid form. It tastes like yeah. bubble gum, right? And you feel like shit because you've got this softball in your throat that hurts when you swallow it. The doctor does the swab. They get the test back. It says, Daniel, you've got strep. You're actually happy that you've got strep because there's something for them to be able to treat. And they give you the bubblegum med and then you sleep for two days. You sweat it out. You feel better. You go back to school and you're like, do I even need to take the med for eight more days? That same indoctrination, which is what it is, into I don't feel well. I go to the doctor. The doctor tells me what's wrong with me. What's wrong with me leads to me taking a pill and the pill makes me better. That's the model that we learned at a young age. So we're doing the same thing on the mental health side of things that we've done on the physical health side of things that then leads to just later in life dependencies on what out there fixes me instead of what do I need to do for myself? Because my body's this beautiful machine that can fix
1: itself. Yeah. And you know, like when I got diagnosed with diabetes, I was like, oh, like I can't drink alcohol. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do, I I cut out so much shit from my life that in the beginning drove me insane. It did. But now that it's like I'm through that, it's like I had to do the right things while doing other things. Like I can't just take metformin and be like, all right, diabetes is gone. Right. You got to exercise a little bit, drink more water, walk around. I think everybody thinks of life as the extremes, right? It's like, I have to run a marathon. I need to look like this. I'm like, yo, dude, like go get your blood work Every 6 to 12 months, somewhere in that window, stop worrying about having a six-pack. There's always going to be someone stronger than you, more ripped than you, more hair, better looking, taller, whatever. There's going to be something that somebody has that's unattainable for you that they have attained, You know, whether it be genetic or they just work harder at that certain area. There's There's a lot of things people don't understand how important genetics are when yep. it comes into terms of exercising, metabolism, and all that stuff. I tell people all the time, exercise to not be fucking sick yeah. when you're 50, 60 years old. You yes. know, exercise so you don't fucking have a heart attack at 48. Yep. You know, maybe you have a heart attack at 68 because there's genetic things there, too. I always just tell people exercise for your blood work. All that other stuff will come if you're just exercising. The way you want it to. There's a cause and effect. Like you said, like, this is going to help your arms. This will help your delts. This will help your thing. You want to know what also it's going to help? The way the body transfers blood throughout your rest of your body. <laughs> you know what I mean? So of you don't course. have a fucking blood clot from playing fucking Halo all night. I tried to just tell people, like, don't worry about getting ripped. Worry about living life and not being in a fucking wheelchair when you're 60 years old it's so big I, and, and by the way you can do both right like yeah. you, can, you can have a little bit of
0: vanity play where you want to look good but the other piece of it is functional right it's functional movements and it's like I look at my parents and my dad now he's walking nonstop. stop he, he looks emaciated to me he lost too much weight like when the older people lose weight and the skin starts <laughs> to droop a little bit and I'm like dad do resistance training in some way like Think of just the human condition. We were meant to be in tribes that then ran out and had roles to kill the animals so we could have the meat or to go get the berries, whatever it was. Like You were meant to be using your body, not just walking around the block going like this at a very slow, gingerly pace. I'm happy for you that you're getting off the couch, but you have to do things that move your freaking body and get your body doing things, not just walking. And look, I'm the dummy yet. Like you mentioned fiance into wife, right? Like I'm not married yet. Don't have the kids yet. I'm sure I'll mature at some point and get that. But I look at my friends and it's easy for me to point fingers because I'm not in that situation. So that's why I caveat it that I'm, I'm not calling them out. But I see between the stress of work and then the stress of being a dad. And I see how they've let themselves go in terms of not finding the half an hour to just get buy a cheap elliptical machine and have it in your basement. And just get yourself moving and doing that. And they're letting themselves go. And the excuse is always, there's not enough time in a the day. There's not enough time in a day. And I think to myself exactly what, you, what you're thinking is like, don't you want to be old enough to hold your grandkids? Don't you want to live to hold them and then have the strength to hold them, be able to walk around with them, throw a ball to them, do whatever. But like the rate you're going, you're using an excuse for why you can't do these things that are going to lead to greater health later down the road. It's no different than we're putting money in at a young age into a 401k or a rough IRA or whatever it is that it has compound interest and it builds. And you're like, holy shit, I didn't think I put that much money in. But look, after 20 years, it's grew to something. It's the same exact thing. You're putting
1: deposits in towards your health that you need later on down in life. And I tell people all the time, like with my medication, it's like, I don't want to be on this shit forever. You know, it's helping me get to where I got to go. You know, it's like I look at like performance enhancing drugs, right? Right. I think athletes should be able to take them in non-contact sports. <laughs> I really do. I really do. Like if it's yeah. not like a fighting sport, let them all fucking take. Because I I why not?
0: Take, why give, not? Give, then why, so so if if both they give the them zone big, shots. But if, if both guys can take it or gals can take it in a UFC fight, and there's no advantage of one taking another, why are you differentiating between contact sports versus non-contact sports? Because it's it's death. You're thinking because of their size, they could really beat the shit out of each other, where they injure yeah. each other. Yeah, like okay. I, I just feel
1: like even a superhuman can die. You know what I mean? Yep. So that's like what I get afraid of. It's like fucking LeBron James's kid is running around practicing basketball, has a cardiac event. Like there's things that happen in sports all the time. Right. And I'm just looking like, hey man, I have four ounce gloves, and I'm trained to kill someone. Yeah. Relatively easily. Yeah. That's where I just draw the line because oh, well, I'm trying to think of what sport is
0: out there. Like besides baseball, what sport is out there that really technically is not a contact sport, like basketball, curling? basketball. Like, yeah. OK, if you, let me tell you something. As someone who played basketball my whole life, if you take roids and you're strong enough to do it, when you're guarding someone in the post with that elbow, you can damage that person's kidneys pretty bad. You want to yeah, dunk yeah. on top of someone and land on someone like Basketball is a pretty contact sport. Hockey is a pretty high contact sport. So like, I hear what you're saying. The difference between actually the sport being punching someone in the face.
1: Yeah. Like you might get punched in the face in a hockey match. In a hockey game. You know, you might drop the gloves. You still got a helmet on. Yeah. Not not a lot of clean stuff's going on. It's more dirty boxing, right? That's fair. If I'm just coming out here to literally make you unconscious. Okay. You know, I could kill you. (laughs) <laughs> if, I, if I'm just to the gills, you know, like I could kill you, but I'm just like, Hey man, so many basketball players are probably on HGH. Like look what they have to put their bodies through on a nightly basis to play 82 games. Let them juice up, baby. Let them juice up. Like who gives yeah. a shit because here's what it comes down to. I want the purest form of entertainment Yep. because that's why I watch sports is for entertainment. If LeBron takes HGH and I'm not saying he does, but if LeBron takes HGH and they're like, hey, he can play till 45, I'm like, that's good for the NBA. And he's like, I'll, I'll, I'll watch that.
0: So to your point, right, like ethically, where I always struggle with why are there rules is you're like, someone's allowed to smoke marijuana in the new CBA. OK, that that has endocannabinoid positive impacts, whether it's on the CBD side of things alone or the THC with the CBD, obviously different different belief systems in terms of what works and what doesn't. So we're letting someone smoke weed because it reduces inflammation. We're letting someone take an Inflamatone supplement because it reduces inflammation. We're letting someone take creatine because it's a stuff that is, is extracted from red meat that our cells need to make better ATP so we can have greater energy throughout our body. Where is that line between that's allowed but this thing called steroids is not allowed? Yeah. Especially when steroids... Obviously, there's different forms of steroids, right? There's the D-ball steroids versus the HD, And and whether you could, people might poke holes. I mean, that is a steroid. That isn't a steroid. I'm just painting in generalities here. Taking testosterone, right? If you take it to raise your level of testosterone, okay, testosterone exists naturally in the body. It exists at different levels for different people. But guess what? That person who takes a lot of testosterone, Okay, let's use Barry Bonds as an example. Let's use Sammy Sosa as an example. They also have to manage injury on larger muscles, on smaller bone frames, that if they take too much, they're not going to be able to stay in the batter circle and on the field that much longer. So you're still having to manage the process of taking something that is an enhancement. And to your point, I don't understand ethically the line between we allow some things and we don't allow other things. Who makes that line up and why was that line created? Now, someone might say to me, Eric, well, why is that the case with just, you know, socially things with alcohols allowed versus drugs aren't? And I would say, exactly. Why is it that we allow some things and we don't allow other things? And On the drug side of things, if it's because to the level that you can take it, it can create things like psychosis and it create things like awful mental health changes Okay, I understand policing it and making sure that it's illegal, even though people are going to find it on the black market. But when it comes to steroids, with the way in which they've been ate from the Balco days all the way to now, and the amount of research that they've done on what's the right amount to take and all that stuff, I'm not someone who's ever done a steroid before in my life. So I'm not advocating for it, right? The only thing I ever did at a young age, I took creatine and I was like, I'm a vegetarian, right? From the time I was a young age. Most people look at me and don't think so. So they're like, I take creatine, I'm like, holy shit, like I'm lifting significantly more than I've ever lifted before. I stopped doing it because it actually scared the shit out of me because I was like, I'm getting like too big almost at my frame. I'm not going to be able to move up and down the basketball court. It's an ethical thing and I don't understand why there's a line. I don't who created that line.
1: I never understood it you know when you go and get blood work there's good ranges high yes. low ranges. just set a range that where they could take this type of stuff just to stay healthy because you're going to tell me this guy can go get a cortisone shot but he can't take this to like stay on the field you know like, let's do what he wants it's his profession i'm not saying go out there and, and shoot d ball at halftime but you have players that went to germany and got stem cells in their knees and shit like you just took the words. So stem
0: cells in the knees. Remember back in the day, it was microfracture. Then it was spinning the, your blood in a centrifuge. Blood then, open. You know, putting it back into your body. I was at this functional medicine conference the other day, and we met this guy who's he's got a supplement, and I'm going to botch exactly how it works. So again, the, the molecular biologist will rip on me for this one. But, and he's working with, let's just say, it's a big-time tennis player, okay? And in the pill form, he's able to get bubbles of oxygen into the cells that then bring nutrients to the cells in a faster, better, more efficient way. That is not something that is detectable and or maybe it is detectable, but it's not being looked for in the current test that professional athletes have to go through. Why is that not a performance enhancement, but taking a steroid is, right? And that's where I get to. It's like, and then we damn Roger Clemens and we damn, you know, Sammy Sos and we damn Mark McGuire. Like that was an era where they were all taking them. I'm not advocating breaking rules, but I am advocating for common sense. And yeah. at some point, common sense has to come into play.
1: Well, that's the thing, though. Too, it's like how we touched on on psych meds and then these types of meds, right? It's like how you brought up Barry Bonds. I think everything, as cliche as it is, is, is the moderation of things. Barry Bonds overdid it a little bit, just as guys watching the game, but. Look at Lance Armstrong, right? Like Lance Armstrong is like, oh, he's a cheat and did this. This guy probably raised like a billion dollars plus for cancer with, that he really had. Yep. The guy lost his nut. Everybody cheats in the Tour de France. So like, yeah, we're going to like crucify this guy. I was like, because he rode a bike through France and he was like spinning his blood around. Who gives a shit?
0: It circles back to what you and I were talking about earlier with the bullying at a young age and why do people do it? I think people see someone on a pedestal like that. And when they get a chance to take them down, they go, that's a bad example for our kids. And you're like, dude, if you were in that same place, whatever your morals are, you'd be finding a way to toe that line, toe that line, toe that line. Again, I'm not someone who's taken steroids. I'm someone who considers myself who plays within the rules. But at the same time, when someone breaks those rules in that way, to your point, there were definitely people that he was competing against that were doing the exact same thing he was doing. They were just never out of the way they were. Unless someone is doing something to hurt other people, I don't damn them for something they took for increased performance. I kind of understand what they're doing.
1: But it's also like, as soon as a team wins a championship, what's the first thing you see? They're all drinking alcohol. They're all popping champagne, crushing beers. Think about how many players get DUIs. But the league's biggest sponsor is Bud Light. Well, you just nailed it.
0: So I'm, I'm friendly with a guy,
1: Royce White. He's got very strong
0: opinions, Royce, right? Drafted by the Rockets. Had the a guy. Player, yeah, okay. All right. So you know Royce. So Royce, he goes off on these. He's a brilliant guy. Like, oh, yeah. Out there, but just like he can talk for four hours straight without you interrupting him about 50 different topics. And he's like, the NBA, which ousted me for talking about mental health, their biggest sponsor is Budweiser. And then their next, they just brought in gambling. And so basically on the one end of their mouth, they're going, Hey, you're not supposed to drink and drive. Hey, we've got advocates who are talking about mental health and getting out there and talking about the importance of taking care of your mentals as they talk about it, or the NBA calls it mind health. And at the same time, you're feeding them ads on gambling. And, you know, one of the biggest pitfalls of addiction, you know, when you're watching sports is getting involved in gambling. There's a talking out of both sides of the mouth that I think, you know, we need to have more honest conversations and go, if we're going to let open the reins and, and let things loose, fine. Let's have an open and honest conversation about each other. And I think you nailed it when you said range, okay? Yeah. Everything that we do in health is within a range. Your blood pressure is a range. Even your cell counts for cancerous cells are within a range. People think you have cancer, you don't. Every one of us has cancerous cells in our body. Our immune system is trying to get rid of them, right? And, and hopefully very successful at doing so. But I think we need to create ranges where we allow people to stay within, right? That is an acceptable if there's a governing body, right? You obviously can't manage fans and say this is or isn't acceptable, but you can show fans how you're managing that range with your players as partners of your owners and go, Here's what we think is healthy ranges for each one of these things. And then what it does is, oh, I'm beyond that range. That's something I should think about right now, because that's where the league is telling me that's not a healthy thing to do. And I think gluttony, unfortunately, is what stops them from doing that. They get dumb, fat, and rich from not putting an end to that range. And so once they open it, they go, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll put a 1-800-GAMBLER out there. Yeah, they won't. They won't put real parameters in place and go, "Hey, as an NBA, you know, league office, our recommendation for you all is to look at your finances, to look at the discretionary income you have, and to never gamble more than ten percent of your income after expenses." Right, like a comment like that that should be universal out there. And then be like, "Hey, guess what? Our players gamble a little too. They're not allowed to gamble on their own team. They're not allowed to gamble on their own league, but they do gamble on other sports." And our range for them is also that 10% of what their salary is. Now all of a sudden we're all having a real conversation. We're all on the same page, but it's, people won't have real
1: conversations like that. Well, it's like LeBron, like being a spokesperson for Sprite, you know, it's like diabetes in a, in a fucking bottle. And then it's like, they all have tequila companies and shit. I'm like, it becomes too much. So I wanted to ask you one more question before I let you go, because I, I could literally talk to you for three hours, but you have a life. TMS therapy. Sure. What are the pros and what are their cons? Because we've been talking about the pros and cons of medications, sure. steroids, sports, all that stuff. What are the pros and cons of TMS? And for the, those that don't know what TMS is, can you just go into a little description on what it is? So TMS therapy stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation,
0: okay? And there's a number of different ways it's delivered. There's a machine called Neurostar, right? And there's different brands that have come out that are more FDA approved than others. And so it's recommended oftentimes in this treatment plan where you try the meds, the meds don't work, then you try TMS therapy. You get others, especially in the military, where they go, let's start with TMS even before you're getting on the meds. Let's see if it does something for you. When I say does something for you, here's the science, and it's a very loose science that I'm explaining. So it shoots electromagnetic waves into your brain. And in my particular case, the version that I got, they said they wanted to hit this place called the motor threshold in my brain, where they were adjusting this half moon shaped object to allow the waves to hit my brain at a certain place. I'll talk about the areas of the brain in a second that my thumb would jump. And when they hit that area, they felt like they had the right spot. And the way it was explained to me was, Eric, why can't you form thoughts? Why can't you form sentences? Why are you having a tough time coming up with emotions? Your neurons are impacted where things have shut down. And by us shooting these waves into these areas in your brain, it's going to allow the presynaptic neuron to fire to the postsynaptic neuron, these neurotransmitters across right? From one neuron to the next, through that synapse, that gap in between, you're going to be able to have more thoughts. You're going to be able to have more feelings. You're going to be able to have more behaviors that you weren't able to have before. Okay. Good in theory. Science of it makes sense to me. Willing to try it because it's different than just putting an SSRI reuptake inhibitor for everyone who thinks that taking Lexapro like you and I do, or Prozac or Zoloft is actually putting serotonin or putting... Norepinephrine in your brain—it's not. It's blocking the reuptake, the reabsorption of the existing serotonin and norepinephrine that you have in your brain from just basically going back into these receptacles that hold on to them. It allows them to stay more free-floating, where the presynaptic neuron could grab more of what's available and then shoot it across. Okay. So, side note there. So, this is trying to work on the structural parts of the brain instead of the actual neurochemical itself saying, how do we wake these structural parts of the brain up to start firing again? So in theory, it makes sense to me. Now I started with the half moon one and they said to me, based on how you progress, we may have to go to the one that's a full helmet on your head that shoots the waves more intensely into your brain. And when I say more intensely, okay, so I did 15 sessions, 15 days in a row, $350 a session, not covered by insurance. Okay. So My savings is getting eaten up by paying for this thing. Now, in fairness, I'm sure there's a lot of places where insurance covers it. So I'm not damning TMS that, but I want to give the ups and downs of it. So 15 days, I'm not feeling better. I'm actually feeling worse. And so they tell me they want to switch me to the helmet once they put this helmet. It feels like someone's taking a jackhammer and doing this to your brain. It literally is shooting down at you from the top. How big is the fucking helmet? Like it's literally, it's like that big. It literally is like, you know, like the football helmets that you see where the, the extra padding in, in pre-season, yeah, it, it looks yeah. like that size, essentially. Yeah. And, it, and it's got like a hose that it's connected to at the top that's got the wires in it that then goes to the machine that creates the frequencies through it. So I got to so look up. I'm 23 days in. So I'm, I did the 15 days of just the half moon one, which was a little less intense. And now I'm eight days into the, the more intense one with the helmet. And yeah. dude, I, it's four in the morning on the morning of the twenty fourth, and I'm I'm moving my hands so you can see it. I'm sitting on my hands like this with my knees shaking because this thought pops in my mind: swallow a bottle of pills, swallow a bottle of pills, swallow a bottle of pills. It wasn't a hallucination. It was not a voice. It was this error message of self harm playing over and over again in my mind, and it was unrelated to anything situationally at that moment because. I wasn't going through a bad breakup. I didn't, my parents weren't going through a divorce. My dog was still healthy. Everything was fine. Where did that thought come from? The theory from my doctor, who I've learned a lot from since, who oversees our psych alliance that we call Same Year Psych, was that they were hitting an area of my brain called the cingulate. And the cingulate is responsible for repetitive thought patterns. And so he thinks I inflame that cingulate to where suicidal, repetitive, or what they call OCD thoughts often get trapped in there. I'm having this circular loop of thoughts where, hey, we all have those weird thoughts when we drive over a bridge. What would happen if, when a train goes by, what would happen if? So imagine instead of having that thought for one sixteenth of a second, you're now having it perpetually and you can't get it out of your mind. That's what ultimately sent me to the psych ward is that I couldn't get that thought out of my head. So. I've seen TMS do wonders for people, and I've also seen TMS where it's not just hitting one area of this motor threshold, they map out the brain and they believe that they're helping to wake up neurons in different parts of the brain. So it's the same answer to your question about drugs. Different things work for different people. I don't want my story to scare people away from doing TMS if they want to try it, but I also want to give people the heads up that if you're feeling more intense suicidal thoughts... Where they arise out of nowhere, when you're doing TMS, it's time to stop doing it, right? It's that range, like you just said, as long as you're willing to stay within that range and go, I'll try it. Let's see if it does something for me. Oh shit. I'm getting those bad thoughts. that I heard that guy, Eric talk about on the show. Okay. I'm going to stop it now and go to another therapy.
1: We've touched like on the nervous system. I feel like a good amount, right? Are there ways to like self heal your your nervous system? Absolutely. We call
0: the collection of exercises to start to heal an affected, dysregulated nervous system, we call them STAR. It's an acronym. Stress and Trauma Active Release and Rewiring or a gym for the brain. Stress and trauma, what builds up inside of me? How do I do activities back to the work we need to do to release and rewire it out of my system? You're essentially down-regulating that nervous system response so that you can start to heal those affected areas of your body that get impacted because of the challenging life events that you go through. So you nailed it. And the fact that that question came up is beautiful because it's like, okay, we're learning about that. We've become dysregulated. What do we actually do about it? Instead of waiting for the pill to fix us or waiting for the talk therapy to be what our panacea is, there's exercises we need to do. CBT is one of them, but there's 30 of them that are out there that we all should know about. So we have options.
1: So how about this? We'll bring you back on and we'll go over a good amount of those because I think we could just do a whole episode on that where you you can be beautiful about it. But before I let you go, I asked this same question to everybody. So I have to ask you is, are you happy today?
0: This is, I'm I'm sandbagging it, but I mean, there's a range of happiness. You said you're honest with your audience. I'll be honest with your audience. I've had a downturn the last two weeks where I can find myself getting into those same patterns that I did where overwork, staying up till two, three in the morning, sending out emails has burnt out my system in a way that I'm needing to refresh. And I'm looking at my calendar going, how am I going to do this when I've got presentations coming up in Vancouver and Dallas and Orlando and Nevada? So the concept of happy, it's not a binary. You're not happy or not. I'm in a place where my head's above water, but I got a lot of work to do to dig myself out to a better place.
1: It's same man. I, I had a really bad depressive episode like two days ago, so I it's know. Right, no, yeah, it's all right. You know, it's like I said though, it's having those things in place to be able to make yourself better in the moment and not have to wait for the medication to kick in. Using coping mechanisms, I'm a big fan of those. Also, a big fan of you, my friend. But where can everybody find you on the internet? Where can they find the shows? Where can they find anything that you're working on right now? For sure, social handles are at. Same here,
0: S-A-M-E-H-E-R-E, underscore global. So same here, underscore global. Website is samehereglobal.org. I'd say our most active channel, though it's not the largest of the following. Facebook's the largest. The most active channel is Instagram. So find us there. I I answer DMs. I'm at Eric K-U-S-S-I-N on LinkedIn. I answer personally there. I just love talking with people, helping how I can. So please reach out. Daniel, thank you for having me on the show and for your producers and everyone else.
1: Absolutely. Eric, again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, This has been Off the Cuff. You can follow us at 101OTC. And uh, can't wait to have you back on. We'll dive even deeper. Awesome, brother. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Damn it. Uh... <laughs>